session. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum. I'm Jeanette Pacher, a curator at the Secession in Vienna, and today I'll be speaking with Cressia Mukwaji, who has just opened her exhibition titled Kirawa. At the Secession, it is Friday, the 17th of February 2023, and uh, we're doing this recording for our podcast series. So, Cressia, thank you for taking the time to do this recording with me. Before we talk about your exhibition that you put together here, maybe it would be good to introduce your artistic approach in general, like what you're interested in and uh, what you address in your work. I find it quite bold and courageous often what you address and how that finds its expression in your works. For the listeners, Cressia Mukwaji is is an artist from Zimbabwe. She lives in Harare and for the, the past year she has been staying in Cologne in Germany. She's in her early 30s and she works with different media like painting, collages, video photography, installation. Cressia, you can tell us more in detail about that. Curious to hear what you say. Thank you, Jeanette. Um, it's very wonderful to be here. And um, thank you so much for a wonderful opportunity to show at your space. So I'm a multidisciplinary artist, as you've already described. And in my practice, I am concerned with issues surrounding the personal and the collective, with a specific focus to women issues and the problems and the struggles that women face in society. Some of these issues are violence, um, abuse, exploitation. And I think in my work, I... Um, bring to light, I think, uh, the stories of women that have faced these realities. And I use my work as a way to, I guess you could say, strategically resist um, the systems that perpetrate the different kinds of violence that women are facing. I can say, like I mentioned before, I shift between the personal and the collective. So I don't leave myself out of the work. Perhaps this is how I sort of find my balance through working across different mediums, including performance, where I use my own body. I'm quite concerned with um, the condition of the female body in its different state traumatic um, healing and spiritual. And I think this is how I came about to be interested in this concept of bringing elements of spirituality to the subjects of visual activism, which is where my work also sort of exists. So Kirawa, the exhibition that I presenting 
is a coming together of these two worlds, which most people may perceive as conflicting worlds. But I try to seek healing through my work. And I think elements of spirituality possess or embody this idea of healing. But at the same time, I wanted to maintain the visual activism that I had been portraying in my work. May I ask you, because you use this term of visual activism, yes. what do you understand or could you describe what that is or how you apply it? I think activism, to begin with, I actually don't know what the dictionary definition is, but I think it's to act mm -hmm. against or for something, to stand for something, to speak up, to push back, to resist. And this is what I do in my work. You could also add, it could also be to stand in for something, yeah. to claim for something. Yeah, or reclaim mm -hmm. as well, because empowerment is also like an important subject in my work and this concept of reclaiming my voice and reclaiming my power as a woman, as an artist. Yeah, so then I do that in a visual, <laughs> artistic sense. I don't know if it was intentional in the beginning, But through realizing that it was a pattern of stories that were challenging oppressive systems in society, that's where I came to realize this is a form of um, activism. Just to give, you know, someone who is not that familiar with your work, yes. um, just to give an idea of which stories you are addressing, because you are coming from, let's say, societal background um, which is like defined as patriarchal where women do not have such a voice or where violence or abuse and exploitation is uh, quite common as you said in the beginning and you are addressing this situation and what it's doing to society or what it's doing to people so talking about the visual activism and these aren't fictitious stories that you make up, no. right? No. Um, I think I can give three examples. Mm -hmm. The first one being um, in a domestic setting where often in African homes, women are encouraged to protect their homes not so much in a positive sense. It's often when they experience challenges or when they are abused to, to a point where they feel they can no longer be in the marriage. And then when they seek advice or when they try to speak up about that, the immediate community or the immediate family often says, as a woman, you have to be strong. Um, you have to withstand all of this pain and suffering. So I think our mothers and grandmothers, not all of them, but most of them have experienced this ability to transform pain and paint a, 
almost perfect image of what a happy family or a happy marriage is. And I think that was a kind of resistance in a sense, though I feel that it was unhealthy and abusive and oppressive to advise someone to stay in a situation where they are clearly unhappy and abused just to keep up with appearances. But it kind of took power from them in a sense because the men who would be abusing them would literally get away with that because at the end of the day the family looks happy because you have sort of transformed your pain into happiness. So in a domestic sense I think there is a kind of um, abuse that happens in homes that we don't see because it's sort of transformed in a way or, or withheld or hidden. And in a more social setting, I can speak about the engagement that I had with a group of sex workers in Hopley Farm, Hydensty suburb in Harare, after I had literally stumbled upon this group of women during my um, photography assignments. I used to take photos for money at some point, you know. And so I um, became interested in the stories of the marginalized and the stories of the silenced. I approached them with the intention of understanding and possibly telling their story and in a way that obviously they would allow and be comfortable with. So this was a research that opened my eyes into seeing the harsh realities that um, these women face on top of already being so marginalized and negatively labeled in society when in most scenarios these women are in these situations because of lack and because of poverty and then they are also existing in a in a country where sex work itself is illegal so i became now concerned with how women were being treated socially and decided to start to make work about that even through my um painting I have found the photographs that I took to still be too sensitive to share. So it's a body of work that I still have and I'm still sitting with. But I decided I could take the gruesome stories that they shared with me of how they are often abused by some of their clients and things like that. And and I was asking myself, how can I reclaim dignity and respect and power for these women through my work. And I think this is how the conversation of empowerment and even things like financial independence, which is something that I've also touched on in my work, um, came about. The third thing that I can also give as an example is possibly on a political, in a political sense where there are also women that exist in political scenarios that are activists, not just women and men. But my interest is quite um, biased to women because I am a woman myself, so I feel for them. 
So um, I've also addressed work about women that have been uh, brutally attacked or assaulted, in some instances murdered, because they were challenging oppressive systems in society and reimagining their lives in or their um, their rest or what happened to them to kind of bring their spirit or their memory to a place of rest and a place of healing. So these are just some examples of some of the stories that I have um, touched on in my work, in my practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I find it really beautiful and um, interesting the way you sort of speak of these women in different situations or contexts and how with your artwork or by creating your work, you are actually thinking of, you know, not just depicting something or documenting something, but rather also trying to go or or provide for some kind of transformation there, like in terms of giving back some dignity, as you uh, spoke of before. Like, when you look at your works in in the exhibition at the secession, we have, like, you're showing a painting of the sex workers where, you know, they're sort of like the, the figures are abstract in that sense that they don't have, like, a facial expression or that you aren't depicting one specific person or two or three, you can sense that there is some empowerment that has been taking place there because they just of the posture or the way uh, you display them or they are depicted there. And on the other hand, opposite to that painting, which is called... I'm sorry, but the you could it would be nice for you to say the yes, um, uh, the green one you mean the uh, the, the red one ah uh, the red one so manje manje pisa which means as for now I am hot <laughs> yes yeah so that's um, that's the picture of the sex workers um, displaying their lingerie yeah and opposite to that hangs a green painting like a painting on green fabric which is titled Kapfura, <laughs> which um, translates to there was a time I was afraid but not anymore yes mm-hmm. and I like this you know like when you go into that space and both pictures are really powerful sort of they're strongly in their expression and uh, they are you can sense the power of these figures so that is something that I take also from your work that it doesn't it's not just sort of stuck in stating or or yeah making a statement on this is a situation that women are in but also having some hope or an idea of this transformation and that people or women can find empowerment. In the exhibition, you have created a Kirawa. Most people in Austria, in the Western context, are not uh, familiar with this. So I would like to ask you to 
tell us what a kirawa is and how it is used and how you have made your own specific version of it in the exhibition. Of course. Um, so a kirawa is um, a sacred space, where an outdoor sacred space where people, religious groups of people and even people who just may not be following a specific religion but need help and have problems come to. So people gather at this place and often they are seeking healing, often they have problems that they have encountered and they need help. So when one goes to a kirawa, they go through a kind of um, interview, if you like, where often they can tell you your problem before you even begin to describe it because they... May I, just one question, mm -hmm. who is they? They are like, the term in Shona is mapostori, which I believe translates to apostles. And these are spiritual mediums that are able to perform these rituals of healing or rituals of sending back a curse or rituals of putting an end to whatever problem that you may be facing. They can be male, they can be female. They're usually dressed in red. The red fabric represents in African tradition or African traditional religion, it represents battle, spiritual battle or spiritual warfare, just like you would imagine red for danger or something like this. So the title of my installation is um, Kiraware Nguochuku, which translates to the red cloth of sacred resistance, because the red cloth is very significant in this uh, space. And um, Kirawa, I have translated it to mean um, a place of sacred resistance. So I had this um, intention, like I mentioned in the beginning, of bringing the world of spirituality together with the world of visual activism. So Ekirawa became interesting for me because I realized it is a place I could bring my problems or the things that I felt uncomfortable, angry and concerned about. So I built my own Kirawa um, where I am... Madzmai. Madzmai is also the name that we use to address these um, spirit mediums. But Madzmai would be referring to a female um, spirit medium that would be um, performing these rituals. So I imagine that it is a place of sacred resistance that I can bring these issues that I'm addressing in the exhibition and in my work and perform a kind of um, magic where I can send back the pain of all of these women that have been assaulted back to the perpetrators or back to the abusers, which is something that can literally happen at a Kirawa. You can uh, go and be shown um, your enemy or 
yeah, in a mirror or in um, in a wooden plate, which we call mbiya in Shona. And the water that is there is believed to be holy. It is believed to be carrying the energy of healing. It is believed to carry very metaphysical power. So you are asked at Akirawa, so you have this problem. How can I help you? What would you like me to do? And you can say, oh, please send it back. And so they perform a ritual where they tie the red fabric three times and they say, as we are tying this fabric, you are receiving your healing and the pain that you have felt and the hurt and disappointment or curse or whatever is being sent back. And um, we casually refer to that as the back to sender uh, mm-hmm. ritual. And all of these ideas were very fascinating to me. And I just thought, let me recreate this space in my own style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So in the exhibition, we have uh, the situation. I'll describe, try to describe it. There are two trees yes. in plant pots. That actually, as high as the space itself or as tall as the space itself, and uh, you have then tied a white cloth in between the two trees, as it also serves as a projection screen. And in front, or in the middle of the trees, there's a pile of stones and rocks on which, on, on top of it, you have placed a wooden bowl and there is water from the Danube in that bowl. And this is the Kirawa for the exhibition. Oh yeah, the red um, cloth is also uh, placed upon the stones. And then you have a green cloth that is attached to the plant pots. And you were talking a lot about like the different meanings of colors uh, as you were referring to the red cloth and also the white color has a, a certain meaning you are projecting on in two situations on this white satin material which also has a shiny surface i'd like to maybe now talk about the videos that you're showing uh, in the exhibition three of them which one would you like to talk about first? I think uh, maybe Raka Zirovarika Jamba, which translates to the cock that hit itself and it cried. Very weird translation, which I don't know if it really has the same punch <laughs> as it has in Shona. But yeah, I can speak a bit about... That's it. the one, sorry, yeah. that's the one that you are showing as a on a big projection yes. in the first room of the exhibition. Yes. So, wow, this piece has quite a few layers. But as I mentioned, I often use my body and uh, I am the uh, body <laughs> or the subject that is performing in the video. And uh, I disguised myself with a uh, pink overall, some boots, some gloves, a mask and a wig. And uh, I am seated holding kind of shredded whip, flag, whisk, and all of these 
words carry different intentions in the work. I am seated against a leopard print backdrop. And um, maybe I can start by talking about why I wear uh, this blue wig Please do. <laughs> yeah. in, my, in my performance work. And um, I'm interested in the concept of, or rather questioning, why African courtrooms are still wearing Western wigs. I think this, I find it very strange and not so empowering um, to African systems. If anything, I find it almost oppressive because it is kind of a reminder of the power that we were under during colonization and the fact that we continue to wear these wigs makes me question, are we really independent? Are we really free? Or is there still um, some kind of power at play? And um, one of the things that I do in my work is to use a sense of humor, maybe not so hilarious, but I find wigs to remind me of clowns. When I wear a wig, I want to make fun of something. And I find that to be empowering, that when somebody wants to oppress you, you laugh at them and you mock them. So the wigs are representing um, my form of resistance of colonialistic mindsets. It's an attempt to decolonize myself from Western oppressive systems, which I just question in general. Moving on to the um, use of the leopard print, I think this represents the conversation around power and empowerment, which is constant in my work. And um, I use the leopard print because in Africa, when one wears this print, they are often a leader or a chief or a queen or they are just in some position of power. So becomes a symbol of power for me that I use in my work. And as someone also who's interested in the subject of power politically, I decided to make a comment on issues of corruption that are happening in my country and how this has affected people. And um, this idea of money disappearing and theft in the government is something that I represent by being dressed as a robber myself. So you find that I have these gloves and this overall and these boots, and I just look like a thief. I often cover my face uh, in my performance to try and um, embody something else or to embody the face of patriarchy because I am not performing as myself in the work, but I am performing as another being. So I, I am singing the national anthem in this piece, not all of it, but because I am addressing national issues, I found myself singing the national anthem, but in a kind of melancholic state to kind of trigger the discomfort or the sadness of 
the issues that are leading to poverty and corruption and the struggle of women in in my country. So the flag that I'm waving is now shredded instead of it being in a state of color as well. I also use the same prop to represent the hammer that the judge has in court to sort of chastise the people that are responsible. So you find that I I hit the ground and I toss back and forth, rocking back and forth, hitting the ground to mimic the act of the judge hitting his hammer down to affirm his power and things like that. I was also quite deliberate about it being white, like you mentioned in the Kirawa, because of what the color white represents in a spiritual sense. It represents purity and healing. And I think above all, when I when all is said and done, it is my hope that um, my country can come to a place of healing. What I also found... Um very intriguing about that video is the way like the images created or multiplied so you see a performer with no facial expression because of the mask that you're wearing making these movements they can you know we were talking about that while we were installing Some are very almost aggressive, like when you're sort of using it like the hammer or hitting it onto the floor. Others are more harmonic or, or it can sometimes represent possibly boredom or but it also has something like passively aggressive to it. Um, and at the same time, like this background that you were talking of, the leopard print backdrop, is sort of flickering and flimmering and then you this this figure keeps reappearing in different states and um, but also not complete. So that's an effect that I found very uh, yeah, it was surprising first, but it's sort of makes you wonder what are you trying to achieve there could you tell us a bit about that yeah sure well i wanted the video to carry feelings of discomfort and the appearing and disappearing sort of duplicated images of myself feeling almost like ghostly or ghost-like I could describe it as kind of like an army or a presence of others that are not present. Because I think in the work or in the exhibition, I do address women that are not longer alive, that are not present, but they're spiritually there. So I I worked with an amazing video editor, uh, my partner, Tinotenda Tagire, and I was describing this to him and he's like well we could repeat this um, and it could appear and disappear and I was like yes that would be creepy <laughs> which would be kind of the the idea of it being almost like a haunting feeling I really did not intend for the video to be comfortable and I think that was also another reason why I, I didn't want my face to show because 
maybe I would be caught smiling or I would be caught giggling or something. And this lack of expression or lack of emotion gave me control over the feeling that I wanted to to give my audience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers. Yes, well, I think also you now saying that it gave you control over something that you wanted to achieve, whilst at the same time, precisely that was to create some kind of uncomfort or ambivalence or so that actually the viewer is left in sort of like uncertainty. Yeah. You just don't know is the, which way something is going. And then with these um, figures that keep reappearing, I think that's what sort of attracted me, sort of made me interested when I, when I sort of first saw it. Yeah. 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 It also carries a growling sound. And there are these moments where you are just, staring at this figure and it's staring at you and there's a growling kind of sound which I was hoping to trigger some kind of um, element of trauma I think where if I'm to describe or personify patriarchy I would think of it as beast-like or animal-like And by having this growling sound in the video, I wanted to evoke, I think, this um, sound that you would think about even after leaving the space. And I think sound has an effect of sometimes having a more lasting impression than visuals. Yeah, it was so important for me to try and bring all of these layers together to achieve what I hope I achieved. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe just to wrap this up, and I hope it's okay for me to ask this. um, I think it's, you know, the way you present your work here in a European context and how that is read here and, you know, all the information that you need to provide possibly for people to have a better understanding of what you're addressing here. I wonder how it is received in Zimbabwe. I mean, you did represent Zimbabwe at the Venice Biennial last year with, I think, three other artists. But it's a very different context, and I wonder how that goes there. Well, it's interesting because I'm often uh, surprised, I think, when an invitation to exhibit or something like this comes. I've often been described as a problematic artist simply because I refused to conform to systems that I did not agree with. And I think without mentioning names, people that had influence or people that find themselves being regarded as gatekeepers of the art world in the country felt challenged by my presence or my work. So I found myself uh, blacklisted at some point, um, which meant there were certain spaces that I could not access. For instance? For instance, the National Gallery being one of those spaces, ironically. I mean, interestingly, I wasn't interested at the time because I had 
penetrated the international art scene already, which I I can't say I did by myself. I've had amazing mentors who have been a part of my growth as an artist. So it came as a surprise to then be selected by the same space that had blacklisted me. But I suppose perhaps the power was no longer in these people's hands to make the selection. Or perhaps it was my visibility and recognition outside of the country. So I haven't been in the country for some time, even when I received the news of uh, being selected. I was working from Cape Town, and then I had to travel from Cape Town to Venice, and it's just been another project after the other since then. Mm -hmm. But it feels quite ironic for me (laughs) to be in that kind of situation. But I've never been apologetic about my nature as an artist because I think being the way that I am is what has gotten me where I am, which is this far. So I don't know if there are opportunities in the future where I will still be invited or selected to participate in things regarding the country on a national level or if I continue to be labeled as problematic because I choose to have a voice and I choose not to conform to ideas and uh, systems that I don't agree with. So I guess we will see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah. So that's the one part. How do people discuss the work itself or the the art scene? Or is it not being, there was more like uh, just this general refuse because you do not conform? I think the reception of the work is is good because I think from what I hear, People really appreciate how my work is evolving and how I've kind of been consistent in my practice and been very um, almost determined and not necessarily waiting. There was a time when I was looking for opportunities. I was applying for residencies and, you know, I, I kept myself really busy. And I think this was something that even artists that are following behind me have admired and and learned from. And I would meet people that would appreciate and commend fellow artists that appreciated this. And um, so I never really felt like the community itself had an issue with my work. I felt like my work was well-received. It's, it's more of just... Um, when it comes to power, <laughs> All right. yeah, mm-hmm. authorities, that's where I've had friction. When you arrived, we were talking about one issue, there's often this misunderstanding of you as an artist and because you have been working with sex workers or including their situation as a topic in your work, And uh, very, well, quite often there is then this idea that Cressia Mukwaji, who is now like this 
successful artist uh, was actually a sex worker. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it makes for a better story as well. You know, sex worker yeah. turns into successful artist. If you wanted to, you know, you said it might be something to touch upon yes. to sort of just clear this up. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I, I've come across very interesting things online, you know, mm-hmm. from the moment I realized I could Google myself. <laughs> and um, there were a lot of um, misrepresentations uh, and misinterpretations of my story. And I really questioned how that happened because I believe it was very clear from the beginning how I came about to discover this um, group of women. But I think my love-hate relationship with the art world comes from just the manipulation of my voice to sort of commercialize and sell a better story. I think this is something that I would like to address when I um, speak at the... um, at Basel Hong Kong panel where we will be talking about um, the future of, of feminism because I think there is a kind of sugarcoating and commercialization of women's stories that lacks sensitivity to the storytellers themselves and I think to women themselves In my experience, I've often found these errors or these misinterpretations being done by male journalists or male uh, critics. And I've always questioned, like, you know, we want to feel safe around you guys and we even open up feminism and we say let it be inclusive but then once we let you into our space you start to misrepresent and tell our story the wrong way so perhaps it's um, an issue that really needs attention and I don't know if there are other artists that can relate to you know coming or breaking into the art scene with a specific story and then a few years later that story has been twisted and turned into something else that perhaps the art world believes to be more interesting or more enticing or but one has to understand that you know to a certain extent there is a dominance that is at play in the art world that obviously our stories are being used to appeal to. And I find that to be, I think, not just disrespectful, but it's almost like we we escape a world where we don't have a voice to enter a world where we think we have a voice, but it's it's almost as though we are still being um, oppressed in a way. So it's very upsetting. I mean, I sit here and I speak about it calmly, but, you know, uh, there there's an article, one, I'll speak about one article where I had exhibited with another artist and... Um, she had uh, been raped 
um, and her work that she presented was about her experience in the court and all this interrogation and questioning that she went through. And this journalist somehow, male journalist. In just, Zimbabwe? In Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. yes. Just twist, just swapped our names. And now when you read that article, my story is hers and her story is mine. And I wondered, it's not that I felt ashamed or anything, but I felt for her because I felt like you've totally taken someone's voice away from them and you did not care to double check and you did not care to even reach out with your draft to the artist to clarify. So I found women to be a bit more sensitive with information because I don't know if people realize that, you know, the media can leave lasting impressions on on someone's life and how they are perceived, um, not just in society, but like in their business or in their family. So I think it's a lot of damage that is very difficult to undo. But just to set the record straight for anybody listening, thank you, Jeanette, for this um, opportunity. My work with sex workers was a documentary project. And um, when I talk about my personal experiences and observations, I'm talking about interpersonal relationships that I've had friction with authorities in the art world or in whatever capacity. And when I talk about my observations, I'm also hinting on my experience working in a nightclub as a chef in a nightclub where I was really in close proximity with, you know, my subject matter and A nightclub is also a space where sex workers can frequent and I was able to also see this, you know, from my kitchen and this is where I picked up this colour palette that I use in my work with sequins sometimes and um, shiny fabrics and things like that. So, yeah, I think I would just encourage um, writers, journalists, critics, gallerists, you know, curators as well, to be very sensitive with issues um, like this. And, um, you know, because I, I also make time to engage with sex workers that are interested in how I've been telling the story. And I think they would be very upset to hear that I have taken their voice and I've claimed it to be my own. And, you know, people are not really thinking about that kind of um, after ripple effect of these kind of errors. So, yeah, thank you very much mm-hmm. for allowing me to say this. Thank you for sharing it. I don't know, are we good? Or? <laughs> I'm good if you're good. <laughs> There's so much, I mean, we could go on, yeah. but we've already um, touched on so much already and I feel really liberated to have mm-hmm. um, shared on not just the exhibition but my own experiences with um, very difficult things to talk about in general. And it brings me a lot of relief and a lot of healing. Mm-hmm. So oh, that's good to hear. Yes. Thank you. Also, um, yeah, I mean, 
I agree we could go on for <laughs> all afternoon. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also nice to point out that there is also a conversation between you and Fadzai Muchemba. Yeah. In the publication that accompanies the exhibition, as well as a text by Noemi Smolik and images of your work and photographs by you and a poem by Pauline... Um, Chiwa, Chizonga, I think. Uh, yeah. I always mispronounce uh, her last name, but... Anyways, there's um, a lot of... Pauline really Chiwata, I think. Chiwata, yeah. <laughs> so some, it's nice to also be able to go back to that and read about what you're talking uh, with Fatai there. Yes, yeah, I think we touched on um, a few issues that relate to the work and being Zimbabwean and being a woman in Zimbabwe and also had the freedom to do so in our native language which was very empowering, at times challenging because, you know, it doesn't happen often and we've been so anglicized as a country that we we are losing our our mother tongue. So it's good to remember to reclaim that and and practice it. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was or would you that means you would normally, you know, do a conversation like that for a publication in English? Yes, absolutely. It would it would be in English. I mean, even in schools, when we have our Cambridge um, exams and things like that, they call it our first language, which is ironic because that's not the first language that you speak in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. As a child, you speak either, if you're from Mashonaland, you speak Shona first. Or if you're from uh, Matebeleland, you speak uh, Debele first. And in your homes, you know, you greet your parents, you greet each other in Shona. But English has become the way of, um, I don't know, I guess also because we were colonized by Britain. And um, that is the language that most people use. But um, it's quite a problem, I think, mm -hmm. that we need to fix mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is one of the ways uh, writing our books and expressing ourselves in Shona. I'm also finding it very empowering to title my artworks mostly in Shona unless I really feel, you know, it's not working. But, yeah. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. that's, that's good to know. Yeah. Yes. So keep on doing it. Yeah, I will. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you, um, Cressia, for this really nice conversation and sharing these thoughts with us. And thank you also for the wonderful exhibition. No, you're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Session. Podcast. Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum.